Hello and welcome. Thank you for listening to Embodied Astrology. My name is Renee. I'm an artist, educator, and healer currently based in Portland, Oregon. I study and practice tropical astrology, which is a system of esoteric philosophy and sacredness, foundational to contemporary life sciences, astronomy, cosmology, and even modern medicine. Embodied astrology is one of the ways I think about things. It's a lens that views the seasons and cycles of Earth and our relationship to planets and the cosmos as an important and intrinsic factor in the experiences we're having here as humans. Through my lens as a feminist, queer, and student of sacredness, I use astrology as a starting point to consider personal and collective evolution, current affairs, relationships, and spirituality. Along with this podcast, I offer audio horoscopes and guided somatic meditations. The audio horoscopes are journeys through the most potent aspects of the current and closely upcoming astrology applied to each individual sign. The guided meditations are body-based and experiential. They include movement, breathing, and inner awareness, and are offered to assist you in processing and thriving with the astrology of right now. In addition to these audio offerings, you can find short essays exploring the current astrological weather and astrology-inspired affirmations for all 12 signs at embodiedastrology.com. You can also follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, where I post semi-regular astro updates and other inspiration. These offerings are given freely and self-produced by me, with occasional help from other artists, and of course my cat May. If you'd like to support this work to continue, please consider sharing it with your communities, writing reviews for the podcast, and leaving likes and comments on the links where you find it. I want to say a special thank you to those of you who send financial support. A one-time or recurring monthly donation of any amount makes a big impact, and every bit goes towards supporting this work to continue. If you make recurring monthly donations, you'll also receive my Zodiacal Season journals as a gift every month. These journals are 20 to 40 pages long and filled with tons of information about astrology, lunar cycles, and planetary aspects for the current season. Like right now, we've just started Aquarius season. The journals are also for sale on my website for a one-time purchase. To check them out or to sign up to become a monthly donor, head over to embodiedastrology.com and click donate or find the journals in the shop. Subscribers also receive discounts on special events and classes such as the Astrology of 2019 class that is now available from the shop at embodiedastrology.com. This class includes a detailed presentation on planetary transits and aspects in 2019 and will teach you to apply this information directly to your own natal chart. Along with the recorded content, you'll receive a package of easy-to-follow handouts and worksheets, a 2019 lunar calendar and planetary aspect guide, and suggestions for personal practices to survive and thrive in the year ahead. This podcast was recorded on January 19th, 2019, one day before the full moon and total lunar eclipse in Leo and just at the beginning of Aquarius season. Thanks again for listening and for your support. Now, on to the astrology. Well, hello everyone. Happy full moon, happy eclipse, happy Aquarius season. It's nice to be back with you. Thank you again for listening. Um, I just want to give a brief check-in, I guess. I recently got back from a trip to Colorado. I grew up in Colorado, and I went back for a week to celebrate my oldest friend in the world's 40th birthday, and um, it was an amazing trip. I brought my partner with me, and I was really appreciative of the way that showing someone my life and the places that I came from stirred up all of these memories, and I connected with the idea of home in a way that I haven't I don't know if I have ever. Um, I had a pretty tumultuous younger life and left Colorado uh, with a fair amount of urgency and (laughs) readiness to to kind of start my own 
thing and didn't look back for a long time. And now that I'm getting older, it feels really good to have an anchor, to have a community. And I was just so amazed to see how much my home has created me. And being away from the people that I grew up with for a long time, when I go back and spend time with them, I realized just how deeply I was shaped by their influences. Um, I feel so privileged to come from a community of art life practitioners. Basically, all the adults that helped me grow up are all people who have found creative ways to live their lives and resist a lot of what I think is very common, especially in the United States, which is isolation of of individuals and families. And I come from a very strong community and a lot of people who are supporting each other to live in different ways and think about life differently. So I just wanted to acknowledge that, that that's what I've been doing in the last week. I've been continuing a, a little bit of a social media vacation, trying not to engage that much or more than I have to with screens. And um, that's been feeling really, really good. The year ahead in 2019, as I see it astrologically and intuitively, feels like a really important year to come back to basics and find ways to come back home. And I say that in a metaphoric sense, not maybe literally for a lot of people, um, but maybe literally in a larger way, that home is the earth. It's something that's very fundamental. And I believe that as humans, we know how to connect with each other and our natural instincts are to be kind and care for one another. And whatever this weird moment of evolution that we're in is, We have deviated a lot from those instincts, but I really believe that this is at the core of everyone's desire is to feel safe and held and seen and appreciated and a part of something that's bigger than them. So 2019, the year of sustainability, the year of resilience, it is not a choice at this moment. Um, We have to find ways to support each other, to be sustainable and to be resilient And this is going to happen as we strengthen our roots and our networks. And our roots and our networks are going to be strengthened the more that we find pleasure together. And the more that we realize that sharing and connecting and communing and coming into our beingness, (laughs) back to our human beingness, is actually a huge space of ease and steadiness, that it does not have to be a struggle That is my deep desire for myself, and it's my deep desire for everyone this year, and yeah. My hope is that astrology can be a tool for that, and thank you for listening uh, to Embodied Astrology. I just want to say again that this is a lens to look through, and in my experience of my own work, I'm an uncommon astrologer. I Um, take a lot of creative license with astrology as a language and the associations I make to the body. Um, And I play with it as a means to understand what's happening right now, to give myself a little bit of context that feels helpful, that feels spiritual, that feels connected to the earth that I live on and to the people that I live with. Um, And I want to share that with you. And I'm really pleased that 
so many of you enjoy it. And thanks for reaching out and letting me know. Thank you. All right. So we have just uh, begun or we are just about to begin Aquarius season. I'm recording this on the day before Aquarius begins on January 19th, 2019. And this is also the day before this big full moon that you've probably already been reading about, the super moon, the blood moon, the wolf moon. Um, A super moon is when the earth is uh, in closer relationship to the moon than normal. So the moon appears bigger. A blood moon is an eclipse. It is the shadow of the earth passing between the moon and the sun and then turning the moon red or brown or, you know, grayish or something. But it's like you look up at the moon and it is not its usual glowing um, silver color. And a wolf moon, I just learned, is um, the name that I guess is more of an indigenous name for the full moon at this time of year because it's when the wolves mate. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, So that's the moment, January 19th, 2019. Tomorrow is January 20th. The sun will begin to shine the light of Aquarius. And in the northern hemisphere, which is where I live, Um, fairly north in Portland, Oregon, the light of Aquarius has a particular kind of coldness and sharpness to it that I think is, you know, at at this time in midwinter, and Portland isn't that cold, but I was just back in Colorado and we definitely had some cold days while I was there. And the, the light of midwinter is full contraction and it's when all of the, the root systems, but also our kind of perceptive nervous systems that radiate at any time outside of our bodies, it's like when we pull in to keep ourselves warm. And there's also the need to reach out and connect with other people to survive. And these feelings are very much a description of Aquarius, And Aquarius is one of the ways to talk about the nervous system in the body. And this is my research. How does somatic intelligence meet and relate with astrology as a language? So the nervous system in your body includes, of course, your brain and your spinal cord. And this is considered to be the central nervous system. This is the highway of information into the control center of your brain. And your brain is working all of the time, even when you're asleep. Different parts of the brain light up um, depending on what's happening, on the ways that you are being stimulated in your perceptive awareness. And of course, stimulation comes in through your sense organs. Um, You know your sense organs, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your nose, your skin, And um, what I love to think about really as the first sense, and I learned this from Bonnie Bainbridge-Cohen, one of my adored teachers, she said that the first sense that we develop is the sense of movement. And that happens in utero. It happens during gestation that we have a sense of ourselves and we have sensation of our bodies, and that sense is movement. We are contained in the amniotic sac, in this fluid kind of oceanic, pre-conscious, pre-individual state. 
but our biological mother is moving around and her body is in motion and therefore our bodies are in motion. And then we have impulses. It's like stretching, moving, a reflex happens. And then we hit against the container of the uterine wall. And that lets us know that we're in a body. So I love to think about this idea of the first sense being movement. After that, I believe um, hearing is the second sense to develop. And so we hear our mother's heartbeat and sound as a vibration starts to ripple into our awareness. And of course, sound is such a healing space and also such an activating space Before words, the vibration of sound can produce a complete body state. And this is a phenomena that has been researched, um, you know, in many ways by the military, you know, that there's a weaponization of sound um, emitting certain tones that will cause suffering for someone in their brain or their body state or some kind of reaction. Um, And I'm happy to say that sound is a a space that a lot of people are working right now. And I love how many sound healers there are right now. And if you have never been to a sound bath, get yourself to one pronto. It is such an amazing and exhilarating experience to be held in a container of sound. And it can be such a healing space because these vibrations enter into our bodies, they touch different organs, they stimulate different chakras or energy centers, they can surround an emotional feeling and not be the story, it's just the feeling and they can help us kind of sequence and and release and feel and integrate. Um, So... I just want to make a quick note about um, Neptune and Pisces <laughs> that um, for those of you that ordered the 2019 uh, Understanding Astrology class with me, which is now available online, or if you were at the actual event, we had an interesting little exchange about Neptune and Pisces. And one of the people that was there, Dreamy, who owns Psychic Sister in Portland, is um, a pretty well-versed student of astrology and their teacher is a historian who's uh, kind of blending, um, you know, historical research with us with astro. And so we were talking about Neptune and Pisces. And one of the things that Dreamy was mentioning is that the last time Neptune was in Pisces was this huge birth of spiritualism in the United States and maybe even across the world. But a lot of people were doing seances and kind of uh, tapping into their own intuition and, and magic. And of course, now we are in another cycle of Neptune through Pisces. And this is a very long transit. It's about 14 years. And all of these people are producing sound baths or um, calling themselves witches and remembering their own embodied intuition and access to magic. So just a quick note about astrology and sound baths. Um, But to get back to Aquarius, the nervous system is in development our entire lives, right? And it's the way that we perceive the world. So after the sense of hearing develops, and this happens in utero, then the sense of smell develops and we're born and smell and taste kind of go together, but smell develops first. And it's the way that an infant will find its mother's breast is through smell. And it's also the way that we recognize one another 
is through smell, through pheromones. It's like if you've ever been in love with someone and you know their smell and, you know, you end up with a t-shirt or something and you go back home or you're somewhere else and you smell their shirt and it's like, oh, they're here. So the ways that we locate one another as well as receive subtle information about the intent or the state of being of another person can happen through smell. And you see this with animals, right? With all kinds of animals and especially with dogs, how they track the world through smell and that smelling another being will give you information about who they are and what they want with you and what their intention is. And when, um, you know, when someone is in a state of arousal, their bodies produce different pheromones. And when someone is in a state of stress, the same thing. Um, so the sense of smell is very developed, excuse me, is very important. And then of course, touch your skin is the largest organ in your body. It's the largest sense organ and skin is one of the important places where the nervous system acts. Maybe you took a biology class at some point, or I know a lot of healers listen to embodied astrology, so you might be familiar with dermatomes. Um, the dermatomes are you know, the, the pathways. How do I want to say this? Dermatome is the pattern that exists on the skin in relationship to your nerves. And once upon a time, when you were growing as an embryo, you were not looking anything like a human being. You were looking more like, I don't know, a little tadpole. And before you even got to the tadpole state, you were this cluster of cells and those cells differentiated into cells that would be outside or on the periphery and cells that would be inside. And so the cells that would be inside would become your organs and your connective tissues. And the cells that are on the outside then would become the skin and also the nervous system. And these cells have a spiral pattern as all life forms on earth do. And so as your central nervous system grew and this outer layer of cells kind of wrapped around your body, um, the dermatomes were our patterns that correlate to your spine. So if you, if this is a new concept to you, <clears throat> just get on Google and type in dermatome. That's uh, D-E-R-M-A, like derma, like dermal, your skin, T-O-M-E. And then you'll see these maps, and it really does look like a map. Um, they're colored in when you look at an anatomy picture. The dermatomes are colored in, and each color relates to a nerve. And this is why, you know, if you get some kind of injury, you might lose sensation in some part of your body, and that would correlate to the part of your spine that you injured. So we have the sense of movement, hearing, smell, taste, and touch. And then the last um, sense to develop is actually the sense of sight. And this then becomes dominant for a lot of people. And we use our eyes so much. So if you're a person who um, is able to use your eyes, the sense of sight, at least in 
American or Western culture is, seems to be prioritized um, above other senses as information gathering. And it's like, oh, if something is observable, then we can believe it. Um, but sight, of course, happens as a relationship between your eyeballs and whatever it is that you're looking at, um, whatever is collected. Um, how do I want to say this? So in terms of sight, there's this huge array, this vast spectrum of light that exists um, everywhere. So the sun is producing this light and light and warmth are what allow things to grow and live on our planet earth. And I'm forgetting right now the, the numbers, but it's like there's this enormous spectrum of light that is available um, and active on our planet. And human beings can only perceive like this tiny, tiny, tiny percentile. And I said this, I had the numbers in another podcast, and maybe you listened to that or you know, and feel free to write me a note and I could include it somewhere um, if you know that answer. But as I talk about the eyes and the information that we pick up with the eyes, it's important to note that we are only capable of perceiving a tiny fraction of the light that is available. And the same would go for sound. Um, you know, how animals' ears can pick up um, so many more frequencies than human ears can. I just want to mention that, that our capacity for perception is extremely limited. And to get back to the eyes, this is a dominant sense for most people. And culturally, it's a dominant sense, what you can see. Um, and this is Aquarius. So Aquarius is... Uh, a sign that talks about the way that information is gathered and organized and then shared and disseminated. In the body, that's what the nervous system does. We perceive our environments and whatever's happening in the environment. Our nervous systems actually extend outside of our skin. And your skin is very sensitive, right? So you can perceive temperature, you can perceive movement, once again, any kind of fluctuation. And then there's also the intuitive sense, um, which probably a lot of you are really familiar with and you work with regularly, but this is the part of your nervous system that um, enervates it, it exists in your gut and your organs. And this is kind of the gut brain where a lot of scientific research and neuroscience development is happening right now. Um, but the intuitive sense is a sensation that we have in our inner body about something that's happening or what someone else is going through or what we should do or something like that. And then there's the part of your um, peripheral nervous system that goes out into your skin that can perceive outside of your body into the sphere of space around you. So at any given moment, you are taking in a massive amount of information. And most of that information travels into your awareness below the level of consciousness. So we get a lot of information and that information um, comes in from the external environment and it travels uh, into our spine and then up into the brain. And then in the brain, uh, it gets processed. 
And there are tons of impulses coming in all the time that would create a cluster if you were conscious of them. So like if you get information that something itches, you're, you're naturally going to move and scratch the itch. Or if you get information that something is dangerous, you naturally contract and your eyes get wider and um, you know your, your circulation kind of pulls into the center in a protective stance. This is not something that you think about. It's just something that you do right? You get information that something smells really good and maybe you could get like a taste of it. And, you know, naturally you're going to kind of move towards that or your stomach juices are going to start to flow or you smell that t-shirt of the person that you love and like your body goes into some kind of associated state. So these are all things that happen below the level of consciousness. And then your body is also taking in information that rises into some kind of awareness. And so you get information through your sense organs that someone is talking and then you listen to them or you see something and your brain names it and then you have some kind of impulse to respond to it. The way that the nervous system functions in the body is through habit and pattern. As you develop as a human being, as you grow in your embryonic development and through the first basically 25 years of your life, you are developing your nervous system and your nervous system responses. So the frontal lobe of the brain doesn't even finish development until age 25. Um, This is basically an excuse. Like if any of you are under 25 and you have adults in your life being like, why didn't you think that through more? You just tell them, sorry, my frontal lobe isn't fully developed. I actually couldn't. Um, Or if you're a parent of someone who's young, just keep that in mind. Like people under 25 are literally incapable of having long-term reasoning and, you know, thinking forward about what are the potential ramifications of a choice that I'm going to make. Um, And just as a side diversion, I want to give a huge, deep bow to my best friend's mom, who I just saw in Colorado. For anyone who lives in Colorado, if you are in Boulder, um, this person, Sage Hamilton, has this amazing school that she started. I think it's called Kinderheart. Um, And it's for for really young kids, I think, like um, preschool through maybe age seven. I'm not entirely sure. But when I met her as a um, 12 year old, she was working with teens and tweens. That was me. And she had this approach to working with young people, which was to just follow their impulse and to help them conceive of what it was that they were um, compelled to do. And so I remember my my friend, my best friend, telling me about how her mom wouldn't give her rules. So if she wanted to do something, she was allowed to do something. But before she could do it, they would sit down and kind of map out what might happen. So if my friend wanted to go to a party at night with you know, high schoolers or something like that, she could go. But before she went, they had to talk about, you know, where it was, what part of town it was in, how she might get home, if something happened to the ride, um, what would happen if all these potential bad things that maybe sometimes happen at parties did happen, what her plans B, C, D, E, F, G were, etc. 
And then she could go, she could make her own choices. And I think a lot of the times she would go through this whole process and then realize like, "Eh, maybe that's not something that I actually want to deal with. There's too many risks. Or she would go through this whole process and then she would go and do the thing and she would be prepared. And I just love that. Like I, I love the idea that we can help one another prepare and grow and acknowledge that when people are young, they don't yet have the experience and they literally don't have the hardware in their bodies to make these kinds of long range, long term decision making um, choices. So that was a side diversion. Um, now, back to the nervous system and to its development, our nervous systems develop through pattern and habit. And one of the things about the nervous system is that it's a recorder of experience. So you have reflexes in your body. These are natural ways that the nervous system develops. And you see this in babies all the time, like a tiny little baby. If you tickle the palm of its hand or the sole of its foot, its toes or fingers will wrap around. And that's a reflex. And that reflex is really important eventually uh, for them to be able to have motor control, to pick up a pen or to have balance to use their feet, right? Like that's a reflex. And then that reflex becomes uh, integrated and matures. And then we develop upon these patterns. And as soon as you learn something, your body records it. And that's what the nervous system does. So you learn, um, you know, how to pick up a pen. And that's a fucking process. Like you watch little kids trying to pick things up and draw with them and compare that to your own motor control and manual dexterity. And you've come a long way, you know? So in this process of learning how to do things, the nervous system is constantly recording. And when an efficient pathway gets developed, then that pathway will continue to be used again and again and again. So you learn how to take a step. It takes you X amount of months or weeks or maybe years to figure out how to take a step forward. But then once you learned that, it's in there. You don't need to learn it again every single day, every time you go for a walk. It's just in there. It's a pattern. And patterns are the same thing as habits, and they function unconsciously. And that's how they function and how they're supposed to function. So like I was saying before, there's a lot of information that your body is taking in all the time that goes below the level of conscious awareness because you got other things to do. You don't need to be thinking about how to take a step forward every single day. And your nervous system is constantly building these beds of information and those information, uh, that information travels in pathways, and these are called synapses or neural pathways, like the way that one uh, nerve then communicates to the next. And responses get developed. The nervous system does not just record functional responses, like how to take a step. It also records any kind of information that has to do with your survival. And that means emotional and mental and psychic responses as well as physical. And this is where we start to understand bias. And in however many of the recent years that humanity has been trying to figure out why 
it's so close-minded or prejudiced, um, bias and implicit bias has become a term that has, is more common and that more people are talking about and understanding. And bias is something that is learned and it's usually learned subconsciously. So here's an example. You are a tiny baby and you depend upon your mother for survival and you know she's your main source of food and protection and you haven't yet differentiated from her and so basically you know infants are identifying with their mother at all times and say your mother um, has had negative experiences of abuse with um a man who was older than her and who was really tall. And then you're with your mom and let's just say your dad is like a small guy um, or your mom is gay or something like that. So your, your immediate close-in experience is not threatening, but then you're with your mom and you know she's getting uh, groceries and she's startled uh, by some guy behind her and she turns around and it's an older man and he's tall and her body goes into an associated state of fear um, because she had an experience at one point in her life where an older man who was tall abused her. So she's experiencing a nervous system pattern, which is a record in her memory, in her embodied memory, right? It may, because it's probably not at the level of her consciousness. She doesn't turn around and think that guy is the guy who hurt her before, but something about his presence reminds her of this thing that happened that was painful, and so her body goes into a state of contraction. Now you, as the infant who are associ- who is associating with her body and with her embodied state, identify with that, and you feel her distress, and you take it on as your own. And then you learn to associate taller, older men with fear. And this is how implicit bias works, basically. It's an embodied state that is passed generationally, that gets disseminated culturally and into communities where there are expectations around behavior. And the expectation could be around our own behavior, like, oh, um, if I talk about sex or touch my genitals, everyone's going to freak out and it's a problem. And I need to be ashamed of this part of my body. And like, this is something that's taught to you as a, as a like young person, it goes below the level of your consciousness. And then someone else is talking about sex and touching their genitals and you freak out, you know, or it's triggering, or you're like worried that they're going to get in trouble. That's not a conscious thought process. This is how prejudice exists and continues to thrive, is implicit bias around um, skin color, around body type, around gender, around um, ability slash disability, around class. So whatever community of people has had experiences with whatever other community of people, and expectations get built in both communities about who the other people are and what they're going to do and what it means that they have this identifying factor and what it means, you know, as a personal experience, like what's going to happen to my safety. The personal nervous system, the individual nervous system cannot be separate 
separated from the nervous systems of the people who are around the individual. We entrain one another and we co-regulate. So entrainment is a process of learning, basically. It's like, um, you know, a baby is making faces, it's reaching for something, and then the adults around it are responding to it. And that baby is getting information that, oh, this is the way I get attention. Oh, that's a positive reinforcement to that thing that I just did, or that's a negative reinforcement, or nobody noticed. And then that baby's nervous system is developing around um, the responses it's getting through through uh, facial expressions, through vocal tones, through um, energy, through smell, through touch, etc. And then as we develop and we grow and we come into our childhood, um, you know, two, three, four, five, six, seven, up until about, I don't know, you know, teenage years at least, our brains are so plastic and permeable and impressionable. And so the way that people speak and how they privilege certain experiences or what they teach young people as much through their unconscious choices as through their conscious choices, you know, this thing of like, do what I say, not what I do is bullshit. It's, you know, kids are watching, like they're so perceptive and they get programmed basically, with the environmental attitudes. And then something happens in the teenage years. And astrologically, I think this kind of starts to happen around 14 years old, where there's a a nervous system kind of differentiation and people start to question a lot. um, And or they really solidify their identification. And then that continues through into the Saturn return, 27 through 30 years old. And at that point, a person is material. So your frontal lobe develops at 25. And then at the Saturn return, your body, like it, it stops being this constant growth space. Cellular production slows down, fluid production slows down. You basically start to die and get old and dried out. And, um, your, your, your mind starts to harden. And so as people enter into their thirties, they start to feel older than the younger generations. There's a marked difference between people who have uh, moved past 30 and people who are underneath and people who are kind of in their twenties or below can really identify a lot in some ways as youth culture. There's like this rapid growth and learning that's present culturally, communally, and friendships in the, in the person, et cetera. And then as most people get into their 30s and then older, their options become more limited. And this is a function of Saturn, if you want to talk about it astrologically, or it's a cognitive development moment or a culturally development moment. But our options get more limited. We start to make choices that have more far-reaching influences, like I'm going to have my own kids or uh, buy this house, or this is the career path that I'm choosing. And habits that you set in your late 20s and 30s are habits that you will probably carry with you through your adulthood. And that's a shout out to you in your Saturn return. This is a time to choose your habits wisely, because if you 
are still functioning in your 16-year-old mind and you're like, whatever, it doesn't matter if I eat this shitty food or if I slouch and have really bad posture or don't exercise or don't brush my teeth, I'm sorry to say it's going to catch up with you and it's going to suck because as you get into your 30s, your body stops, it, it, it becomes less resilient. Basically, we have to work harder to be sustainable. We have to be much more conscious about the choices we're making. There's a larger risk of injury. Options get limited. At this point, people's nervous systems really tend to solidify. And this is something that also happens at the Saturn return. It's like people decide who they are. They decide what to prioritize and how to identify, etc. And it's not to say that people don't change later in life. They obviously do. But at this point, there are a lot of decisions that get made and ways that folks tend to identify collectively. Who are my people? How am I going to engage with society? What kind of grown-up am I going to be? And this then produces what I would want to call the cultural nervous system. The cultural nervous system is not a concept or a term that I've come up with. I don't actually know who did. The first person or the place that I heard it was um, from a person named Tara Hozumi, and they are a a therapist and an activist, and they have a cool blog called selfishactivist.com, and they do a lot of work with um, white people, I think helping white folks uh, understand how to work more effectively and conscientiously with people of color. And I think they also do a lot of other work. And I'm not entirely familiar with what it is that they do, but they're the first person that I heard talk about the cultural nervous system and start to relate polyvagal theory to uh, social theory. So check them out, selfishactivist.com, if you're interested in learning more. Um, I'm really fascinated by this idea of the cultural nervous system. And the way that I had thought of it before was in terms of the body politic. And so the body politic is the accumulated force of individual bodies. And so we have the body politic of the United States, or we have the body politic of um, a town or of a gender identity or racial identity, etc. And there's a way that when we um, are collected, our combined momentum, the momentum of our individual nervous systems then produces this larger impact. And this would be the body politic. Now, as I've started to think more about a cultural nervous system, I'm fascinated by this idea because trauma (laughs) is inherited. As I talk about on almost every single podcast, I'm constantly thinking about the way that we are products of our ancestry and the environments that we've come from. And trauma and bias, of course, infuse our experiences in our individual lives. And none of us as individuals created this. You know, none of us are really responsible for trauma, even if, you, even if someone is a, a perpetrator, even if they are the abuser. Chances are that person has come from abuse, that they have come from trauma. And so these reverberations travel through time and space. They don't have a single origin, Um, or maybe they do, but that origin is so far in the past that none of us know what it is. And it is um, something that we're all swimming in and affected by all of the time. And so the cultural nervous system is then 
this accumulation and residue of everybody's experience participating together. And there is a cultural nervous system um, that I would say is maybe more related to Pisces. And this, for you anatomy geeks, I would think of as the fluid element of the nervous system and the way that neuroendocrine works. Um, So I would think of that more as like a global sentiment if we're thinking about everybody. But then there are nervous systems that are uh, that, that belong to different groups. So in the United States, um, basically since the inception of the United States, there has been uh, massive inequality and violence um, produced by white people upon the bodies of people who are not white. <clears throat> and so if we think about it like that, there's a nervous system that could relate to whiteness and a nervous system then that could relate to blackness or indigeneity or brownness or whatever group you want to look at. And that particular group will have its collected experience. And so if we're thinking about maybe these, this very binary striation between white and black, a person who lives in white skin in the United States will have experiences of whiteness, which means that they will have access to certain things. So, um, not see a lot of the violence and the discrimination that is um, put upon people who are not white. So it won't be part of their nervous system response. And this is like what happens with white people where they're hearing stories of people of color and they're like, that can't be true. I've never experienced that. I've never seen that. It's totally outside of their realm of perception. And then you have another group of people. So let's say people who have um, more melanated skin and are of African descent. And this group of people have huge amounts of experience with bias and violence and have learned to view white people, probably many of them, as a threat. And this is within the cultural nervous system. It's something that babies learn in their first weeks of life and that children learn in their first years of life. And it's not even necessarily because of what anyone is telling them. It's because of the embodied experience that has to do with these identity markers. And so then there are these kind of these body politics. And so we can think of these massive bodies that we're all a part of and the way these bodies are engaging with each other at any given time, either colliding and fighting or dancing or however you want to think about it. So in thinking about Aquarius season and this particular moment of the human experience our evolution or de-evolution and the moment that we're in on earth, I think it would be appropriate to say that the cultural nervous system is in an extreme state of activation and trauma and reactivity. And my experience working with individuals who are in extreme states of trauma and reactivity is that that state produces extreme dis-ease there is not the possibility to rest. There is not the possibility to receive nourishment. There is not the possibility to be relational because everything is moving towards survival and fight, flight, or freeze. And that feels pretty spot on for what is happening in our world right now, that these big bodies that we're all a part of 
are vibrating with each other in this extreme activation. Now, at the same time, there are more and more and more people who are becoming literate about trauma. And this is one of the things that gives me the most hope is that neuroscience is developing rapidly, that psychology has reached a point where it's not just about the mind, it's definitely about the body. And there are more and more skills and tools for working with trauma. I truly think that if we are going to turn a corner, um, embodiment practitioners, somatic practitioners, and trauma therapists are going to be crucial and essential in turning that corner. Um, In as many ways as you can support people and yourself to access this work, please do it because it is immediate. It is immediate to be able to work with someone to develop a parasympathetic response. If they are in an extreme state of sympathetic response, if they're really scared, to teach someone how to breathe, how to feel their body, to give them space so that they can process and release some of the accumulated tension and trauma and agitation that they're carrying around, it goes miles. It goes miles further than talking about it. And talking about it is necessary. We need language for sure. We need to spread information. But if we just have the language and we just keep telling the stories, the embodied energetic state doesn't shift. We need to be in our bodies right now. It's really the only way we're going to get through this time is figuring out how to come back in, come back home, build our root networks of support so that we can allow one another to cry and feel and rest. How do we do this? Well, the opposite sign of Aquarius is Leo. And Leo rules the heart and it rules the spine. And there's plenty of things that you can say about Leo in terms of its performativity or arrogance or maybe more negative associations. But in a positive light, Leo is the warmth of the heart. And Leo and Aquarius together are the circulatory system. It's how our capacity to perceive the external world comes back into the center and what's happening in the center moves out into the external world. That happens in the nervous system and it happens in the venous arterial system. Everything is coming into the center and moving out into the periphery simultaneously. And this is Leo Aquarius as an axis, as a place of balance. It exists in all of us. Leo rules the heart. And one question I have for myself at this moment in time, and I have for basically everyone, is how much can you include in your heart? How much can you let in? And one of the things about Leo, and I can say this from a place of authority as a Leo sun, Leo rising person, is that Leo feels an extreme sense of responsibility to take care of things. It is ruled by the sun. It's the center of the solar system. It holds a lot of things up. And many Leos, myself included, are incredibly controlling people. And to our detriment, we often feel like we are responsible for the experiences of people around us. And it's like, if someone is distressed, it's like, we want to come in and help fix it and tell them what to do. And, oh my God, I got a tool for you. And this kind of thing. And if other people, you know, other people are upset, it's like, oh, it's my fault. And this definitely leads into the pathology of Leo centering itself at every single experience and thinking that the whole world is revolving around them. Yes. Hello to myself and 
you other Leos out there. Um, but it's also an extreme sense of responsibility and the feeling that somehow like we, we need to participate with the, the general state of things, with the nervous system, with the body politic, with whatever it is that's in our environment, that we're at the center of it and we need to do everything that we can to hold everything up and help everyone stay in their place. So pathology and, and like negative ramifications aside, this is something that exists within all of us in our center and peripheral experiences, that we have the experiences of being ourselves. Who am I really? How am I different? How am I unique? Am I special at all? This is very Leo. And then where do I exist and who's around me and who's paying attention and do I matter to them and am I giving them what they need and oh they're upset and what can I do to help or are they angry at me or oh they're happy did I make them smile I want to do it again this kind of feeling how much can we include in our hearts And how much can we feel that our responsibility is not to control other people, that's negative Leo, but to really take responsibility for ourselves and how we are impacting the collective. And this is positive Leo. So for any of us, if we are listening to our own authenticity and into the heart, and the heart and positive Leo is courage and it's pride, and bravery, and honesty. And honesty is, you know, in all capital letters with a million lines underneath it. Listening to the heart is not listening to the mind. It's a different thing. Listening to the heart is listening to feeling. How do I impact another person honestly? What is the result of my choice right now? Is that really what I want to bring into my heart? Is that really the impression that I want to solidify in my nervous system? How much I can include in my heart is directly related to the kind of responsibility that I feel. So if I feel that my responsibility is controlling other people so that my heart continues to feel happy, and that I continue to feel special, that is negative Leo, negative Aquarius. And it manifests as people who are self-centered, who are potentially very charismatic, but are not appreciative of the folks around them who allow them to be and who allow them to thrive and grow and create and express. And it manifests as collections of people and cultures of people who lie to one another and who are not interconnected, who are not functioning well. It's a nervous system that is caught on a loop cycle of survival. Now, I'm going to take a pause and tell a story. And before I get into the story, just full disclosure that it is now about 12 hours later than I was recording just a few seconds ago. So this is the magic of technology. I needed to stop and think about it for the night. I told the story last night and I thought about it all night and felt like I needed to tell it differently today. So yay, technology, I can just re-record over that last bit. 
Um, I'm going to tell a story that's personal and also not entirely mine. This is a story that um, about something that happened to my partner. But I, I guess I want to stop and get into why I wanted to tell a story and also why I needed to re-record. So the story that I'm going to tell is a story of trauma. It's just one incident. It's actually not a very big incident at all comparatively, but it's to illustrate the way that these uh, cultural bodies that we live in get formed and how patterns of trauma begin to manifest in the cultural nervous system between the body politics of different groups of people. And I think it illustrates it quite well. It's one small thing. And in some ways, that's how these bodies get built. There might be very large events that build a big structure, but then there are thousands of paper cuts, you know, over hundreds of years, and those continue to solidify scar tissue. So I, I want to tell this story, but I needed to consider it for a while because also as a person telling it, I hold my own place of responsibility and how I'm interpreting it and how I'm talking about the people who are involved. And I have a lot of my own questions about sharing this kind of story when I myself am complicit in creating trauma for other people all of the time because of my positioning, because I had the fortune to be born into an able body, into a white body, into a female body that looks particular ways, that has certain genetic sets. And I get a lot of access and I have a lot of privilege given to me. So I feel a little like I need to acknowledge all of that. That's what I was sitting with. So I wanted to tell the story also because it's important to tell. And these kinds of stories happen all of the time, every single minute, everywhere. And it is invisible. A lot of times it's invisible. And this particular story is one of the ways that white privilege and male privilege is invisible. It doesn't, these stories don't get told uh, to a larger public. And I have a platform. I have people who listen to a podcast. And so I'm going to take this space to tell this story. I also wanted to make sure that I was in right relationship to the person who I'm going to name as the perpetrator in this story, that he is someone that I've been thinking about for the last two weeks since this incident happened, and I've gone through a huge range of emotions. And at first, um, when I started to realize what was happening, I was so angry, and my initial reaction was to hurt him. And this is someone who I Googled. I know he owns a business, and I had this thought about, ooh, I could somehow damage him. I could damage his reputation, or I wanted to scold him, or somehow I wanted to punish him. I wanted to get back at him. And it's not necessarily that those feelings went away, but upon reflection, and this is maybe where I'm glad that I've been through my Saturn return now, upon reflection, I'm not willing to incur that kind of karma on myself. I'm not willing to do this to my own nervous system of consciously trying to hurt another person. I don't want to hold that weight. And I do feel like it's important to tell the story. So I've been in this kind of um, balancey negotiating space inside of myself as to how do I want to tell this story. 
And finally, um, I want to tell the story because it's very personal to me in something that I'm going through right now, but I know that the thing that I'm going through is not uh, unique. I know that a lot of other people are going through this right now because I've had at least five of you as clients in the last month alone. And what this thing is, is that I am trying to not hate straight cis white guys. And I will be totally open about that. I know that a couple of you listen to this podcast and I just thank you for being willing to hear this and listen to this and to know that this is something that I'm dealing with. And I imagine that you in your straight cis white male bodies are also trying to deal with this. And you're also trying to understand what it is to live in your body and to have the responsibility that you do of this representation at this time. And so you choose to listen to me and to people who are saying things like me because you're getting something from it that's helping you understand your own experience and how to make it better for other people. So I want to say that I'm trying to become less reactive and have less of a story about what these people mean or what these bodies mean because I recognize that when I carry that story really strongly, I'm actually part of creating it in a more ongoing way. So it's not that I want to turn away from it and pretend that it doesn't exist. It's that I want to decrease my own level of embodied reactivity so that when I'm in relationship with a straight cis white guy, and I am in relationship with plenty of them who I love, who are wonderful people, who are wonderful, tender, gentle, beautiful people in the world. I don't want to have this kind of um, tension in myself and expectation of being hurt because I know that that tension and expectation of being hurt leads me to create some kind of vibe around myself that will read into their actions as their intention to hurt me. And I know that people make mistakes. And I know that when people are blamed for their mistakes and the blame is the weight of a huge cultural body, like when I go, oh my God, you fucking straight cis white guy, like fuck you, all of you are like this. I completely flatten and make invisible the complexity of the human in front of me who may be experiencing part of his awareness through that lens of his identity, but that's not the entirety of his experience. And all kinds of factors play into why people make the choices that they make or have the perspective or the ignorance that they do. And I also live in a body where a lot of things Uh, just blow past me all the time where I don't realize it because I'm insulated from it because my body is protected in a lot of ways that other people's bodies are not. And it feels important for all of us to be calling each other in, in different ways right now to be saying like, this is the thing that it feels like to deal with you. And this is the thing that you did. And that's, and this is how it hurt. Please don't do it again. And just Deep bows to all of the women and the people of color and the people everywhere who've been doing this for so long and who have had so much patience and so much grace and who've been doing it in so many different and creative and brilliant ways. Um, Thank you. So here's the story. About two weeks ago on the last um, new moon, the last eclipse, We were going to see a show and I got there early. I was getting seats and my person was coming to meet me 
And so they had arrived, they had parked their car and they had opened the door of their car and they were about to get out, but then they turned back in uh, to get something that was on the seat. And when they had arrived and parked their car, there um, was an SUV, a large SUV behind them, and that car was turned on. It was running, but it was not in motion. And the driver of that car was sitting doing something. So my love parked their car in front of this SUV and had opened the door and then had turned back. And they had been stepping out of the car and then remembered what they needed. And so actually stepped back into the car to get what it was. And in that moment, the SUV behind them uh, pulled out. And I don't know why. Um, It was a dark night. It was a rainy night. It was a small side street. I don't know why the driver of that SUV didn't see that their car door was open, but for whatever reason, he didn't. And he was going pretty fast as he pulled out and he hit the car door. And then, you know, the the entire door and then the front side of um, the car was impacted pretty extensively. And I don't know what kind of damage happened to his car. It was a much bigger and stronger car. And he pulled over and my partner texted me and I came out of the venue and and met them um, not long after this happened. And he seemed really friendly. He seemed very apologetic. He um, seemed to know that it was his fault. They exchanged insurance information. They took pictures of the car. And um, we didn't call the police or anything. Now I know that that's something to do when there's a minor accident like this, but uh, we didn't do it. And so then he left and he went on his way. And my partner was in a state of shock for the rest of the evening and well into the next number of days. And so just to give you kind of like a, a very basic picture of who this person is, um, they are a person of color. They're of mixed race and half of their family is black. Um, they're a person who deals with a chronic illness. They have Lyme disease and, um, Many of you, I know I work with a lot of people with chronic illnesses, and um, many of you know this, that Lyme disease can affect all the different systems in the body in really different ways. And for a lot of people, it affects the nervous system um, pretty significantly, and that's definitely what's happened to my partner. So this trauma of the the car accident was a layer of, of trauma onto their nervous system that had... Um, an exponential kind of effect for them. So it wasn't just the shock that someone would receive if they were uh, living with a healthy nervous system and a really integrated nervous system. It was um, a lot stronger than that. And uh, also, you know, my partner is um, not working full time right now due in part to their disease. And they and their family live with a certain amount of financial precarity. And it's definitely, you know, they're not like the poorest people ever. Like they they definitely have privilege. Um, and there's financial precarity. There's like a consistent question of like, is there going to be enough? So this is the person who is suffering from this impact. Now we thought, okay, it was this guy's fault. The insurance is going to help us. And Hopefully the insurance will even pay now for some body work for um, my love because they were in such a state of shock, like it's <laughs> impacting to them. And and we thought, okay, this is going to work out and insurance will take care of it. So then in the weeks since this has happened, basically um, 
<clears throat> the insurance company is saying that it's my partner's fault because her car door was open um, in traffic. And in Oregon, there's some kind of law about that, that if the car door is open, it's immediately that driver's fault. And because there were no witnesses at the scene, there's no way for us to prove that this guy um, was speeding, you know, that he hit them. And um, I don't count as a witness because we're involved. And it seems like what happened is that his insurance company told him about this and he shifted his story or he went along with that story and now he's saying that it's her fault. And now um, the insurance company is saying that my partner not only needs to pay their own deductible and be the one who carries the record now of this at-fault accident, but that they also have to pay his deductible. And he uh, is someone that we've texted a couple of times, they've talked, and he's basically saying, you have no case against me, you can't prove anything. And he's getting out of this with uh, another kind of dent on his car that's on the backside. Like he said, oh, you know, they open their car door in traffic and it hit the back well of my wheel, which is not at all what happened. And he's claiming that this old accident or this old ding on his car is actually the result of that. And so he's going to get his car fixed for free with no blemish on his record. Um, and that's the story. That's the thing that's happening. So this kind of thing, which is a, is a small annoyance compared to the kinds of um, insults and injuries that a lot of people are suffering all the time at the hands of, of other people who have more privilege than them. Um, this kind of thing has a lot of impact on my partner's cultural body as well as mine. And so once again, like my partner's position is as a mixed race person and they carry half of their family as carrying a strong narrative of uh, abuse and exploitation and being ignored by white people. And being in a relationship with me is something that, you know, I think is uh, both a challenge and a, a space for healing for this person who I love deeply, you know, that, that they more than I are, are trying to learn how to trust me and, and trust whiteness. And I just really want to honor that for anyone who's doing that work, that that is incredibly challenging because it's a cellular memory that has now built up over um, hundreds of years, almost 500 years of abuse and being ignored for your story of pain, not being uh, acknowledged at all, being treated as chattel, being treated as less than. And there's a, a long history of uh, people of color and black people specifically not being listened to. And then there's also a long history of women not being listened to. And when we are sharing something, our experience, trying to talk about what has happened and the other person or people are men, it's the men's story that is generally privileged, that is generally listened to and thought of as true first. My partner is a non-binary person um, somewhere in the trans spectrum. So anyone whose body is representing uh, a deviation from the heteronormative binary is, is typically not listened to as much as straight-looking and acting people are. And so not only are they dealing with this one incident, they are dealing with a momentum 
of incidents and accidents that have occurred not just to their body individually, but to the bodies of all the people that they identify with and that they see being mistreated on the news and that they read about being assaulted uh, and etc. And so with this one decision that this guy is making to not be accountable, he's reinforcing a pattern around his cultural body, around the body of straight, cis, white men. I don't know what his experience is. He might be someone who's also in a huge amount of economic precarity. He might be dealing with a ton of fear in his life. There may be important reasons why he's choosing to not disclose. I don't know. I do know that if he could take responsibility in this moment and step forward and say, I'm sorry, it was a mistake that I hit you. I wasn't paying attention. It was my mistake and it's on me. And I'm going to help you figure this out. I know the insurance company is saying this thing. I want to be your advocate. I want to help. I don't want to make this worse. If he made that choice, that choice would also carry a huge amount of weight, like more weight than just the simple choice. It would go miles, not just for me as someone who's trying to decrease my mistrust of his kind, but but for my partner who has this, you know, even more significant um, history that they're carrying. If he made that choice, the potential would be increased trust. It would be increased love. It would be increased willingness to, to give a little bit, to take an inhale and relax when it seems like, oh, okay, like that guy's just doing that thing that they do. But because he made that choice, now both of us have one more layer of expectation. Both of us have one more layer of fear and resentment in our bodies. And the layer that I carry is significantly thinner than the layer that my partner carries because of the the load that they're already bearing They're already carrying so much weight for this particular class of person. Their body is already carrying so much more responsibility than mine is just because of our our racial backgrounds and the way that our gender presentation is read. So that's what happens. You know, it's like this kind of thing happens all the time in the body politic, that there are these different massive bodies that we're all a part of. And so whether it's the white body or the female body or the Christian body or something like this, there are these massive bodies that we all play into. And when we benefit from a certain identity and another body does not, our agreement to accept that benefit, to not call it out or to not even Um, you know, to just ignore it, to slide right through, to take the privilege, to not pay attention to what our impact might be, it strengthens that body in its entirety. And it also strengthens the divide, it strengthens the rift between uh, the bodies that we represent and the bodies that, that others are representing. I think that anyone listening to this podcast is on the same trajectory as me. I think that you are trying to unpack your privilege. You're trying to understand how to be a better person in the world and how to participate with healing. <clears throat> and I don't think that any of us individually know what the fuck to do. 
as a white person, as a person who like tries to pay attention a lot to whiteness, I have no idea what to do. It feels so confusing and overwhelming and, um, horrifying to me to be part of this cultural body and to feel it kind of continuing to make these large and devastating impacts on other cultural bodies. And I just really want it to stop and I don't know how to make it stop and I won't be the one to do it. There is no one to do it. It's all of us asking the questions together. And I think that at this point, those of us who are asking these kinds of questions are growing in our numbers And I don't know how we hold weight percentage-wise or something like this, but I do know that if 10 to 20% of a space shifts its consciousness, then the entire space can shift its consciousness. So I want to talk about this and I want to share it because I think that all of us together moving into a new direction is what it's going to take. And so I want to give a special shout out to those of you who are the cis straight white guys listening to this show or the people who occupy these kinds of places of embodied privilege and you know what those are more than I do I just want to give a call out to you to talk to the people who will listen to you because <clears throat> not that many of them are going to listen to me a queer astrologer you know, not that many of them, a couple of you are, and a couple of you are going to take something from this and match it to some kind of experience that you have in your own life and be able to do something with it. And if you can then turn around and talk to your friends, your guys, your brothers, your dads, your cousins, your students, your sons, then we start to get somewhere. And if any of you out there are raising sons and their white boys, you have a huge responsibility right now to raise them with a different kind of awareness because we really need them. We really need their help. I was just watching this video of, um, and I'm sure a lot of you have seen it, of a Native American elder who was um, kind of in this face-off with this group of, of white teenage boys at a rally in Kentucky. And all these boys are from a Catholic school. They're wearing, you know, Make America Great Again hats. And their defiance is, is really palpable. You know, they're, they're really proud of their white maleness. They're really proud of their privilege. They um, have obvious disdain and hatred and dismissal of this um, Native elder. And... It's so sad. I mean, it's so fucking sad to watch that video. It's so infuriating. And it's the truth. It's like, okay, there's a lot of people who are being strengthened right now by Trump's America. And we need a resistance and we need a strong resistance and we need the female resistance and we need the uh, BIPOC resistance and we need the white cis straight male resistance the most right now, because you guys are the ones that hold a lot of keys and a lot of weight. Your voices hold a lot of weight. And, you know, it's like this guy that hit my partner's car, his voice, literally just his voice calling the insurance company holds my weight, holds more weight than my voice calling the insurance company. His, his male voice is going to be believed before my female voice is going to be believed. 
And these kinds of incidents are magnified over and over and over again, and they become these huge um, uh, components of the systems that we live in, and they build the systems that we live in. And at the time that I'm recording this, we're over a month into the longest government shutdown in history in the United States. And that shutdown is, is being sustained by a group of primarily older, straight, um, extremely religious, extremely fundamentalist uh, Christian white men. And this group in the Republican Party for the last 40-some years have been trying to decrease social services. They're stoked about a government shutdown. It is working for them. It's doing the thing that they want to do, which is basically to uh, mess up the social services, to create a lot of chaos, to create a lot of mayhem, to uh, weaken people's belief and support for these services so that they can privatize all of them. That's what they want to do. They don't want social services. They want private services. And you know who owns those services? They do. They are seeking to privatize and consolidate their wealth and increase the gap between the haves and the have-nots. And the haves, for the most part, are white people. It's not going to work long-term. I mean, it might work more, longer, for now. But in a long-term sense, it is not going to work for anybody because that kind of leadership and selfishness is not different from what's causing climate change. And I know that a lot of white liberals feel um, nervous getting into social justice and racial politics, and they feel very uh, adamant and comfortable and enthusiastic about throwing their hat in for environmental um, activism. It's not different the way that the environment is being exploited is not different and it can't be separated from the way that people's bodies are being exploited at at, at particular, um, with weight, with a lot more weight on the bodies that are black and brown. It's all tied up in the same thing. (laughs) So the environmental justice that we seek cannot be separated from social justice or from racial justice. They're all the same thing. This is part of a mindset that has taken control, that's dominant in the leadership of the world. And it's not just white people, whiteness and the way that whiteness and capitalism and misogyny um, have formed together to create this stronghold on our bodies and on the planet. It can act in anyone. It can act in women. It can act in black and brown bodies. It's a mindset of exploitation. And like, oh, I'm going to get away with this. I don't care about your suffering. I'm more concerned with my wealth. I'm more concerned with my comfort. And that's how these cultural bodies get built. And it will not work in the long term because we will destroy ourselves. You know, that's the the red eject button right there. And it's been pushed and held down for a really long time that there's not the kind of sustainability and structure that we need in our root networks, in our basic trust and love for one another. And everybody's up in their head trying to figure out how to survive. And the guy that hit my partner's car is figuring out how to survive. And when he made those choices, he was probably feeling that this was a key to his survival. 
and he wasn't remembering that his pain, and granted, he might have significant pain. He might be in a place of a lot of financial precarity, but the pain that he's feeling is magnified for every layer of privilege that he that someone else doesn't hold. So his financial precarity does not hurt as much as a woman's financial precarity. It does not hurt as much as a queer person's financial precarity or as a brown person's financial precarity. And if all of those identities are packed into one, it's significantly more weight. And it's because of his contacts and his privileges and the way that he can get loans and maybe other people can't and who's going to believe him and all the doors that he's able to open and step through that are blocked for other people. And he doesn't see them because it's invisible to him. And that's the way that it works. The guided meditation is all about that. <laughs> if you want to go through it, if you um, are curious about this work, I know for me, it feels like some of the most important work right now is to understand my own positioning. So that's the guided meditation. It's my rant. So we've got this eclipse, an eclipse happening tomorrow in the first degree of Leo. And it is the last eclipse in a series of eclipses that began in August of 2016. So maybe grab a pen and paper and then write down these dates. August 18th, 2016, there was a lunar eclipse in Aquarius. February 10th, 2017, a lunar eclipse in Leo. February 7th, 2017, a lunar eclipse in Aquarius. August 20th, a total solar eclipse in Leo. That's in 2017. That was the big one in the U.S. Last year in 2018, January 30th, we had a total eclipse, uh, total lunar eclipse in Leo. February 15th, there was a solar eclipse in Aquarius. July 27th, another total lunar eclipse in Aquarius. August 11th, a solar eclipse in Leo. And in 2019, we had a solar eclipse um, a couple of weeks ago, and that was in Capricorn. And now we're having a lunar eclipse in Leo. And actually last summer, there was a, a solar eclipse in Cancer. So Beginning last summer, we started to move into a new axis in the eclipses, and by axis, I mean season. And now, uh, kind of with the release of this podcast, we are going to have the last eclipse in this series, and uh, the next eclipses this summer will all be in Cancer and Capricorn. So I, I write about eclipses in the seasonal planner, and I'm going to include it in the post um, for this podcast for this episode. So if you want to learn more about eclipses and when they happen and why and how, you can read there. Um, astrologically, eclipses are symbolic of new perspectives and the ending and the beginning of cycles and experiences. The light of the sun and the moon are our primary lights. They represent um, subjective and objective consciousness. And when they eclipse one another, it's like we get a glimpse of something that's in the shadow and we go, whoa, there's that. And new recognition occurs. And in that recognition, we end things and we begin things. And eclipses are a time when often there's a lot of change. And most often that change is not a surprise, really. It might feel like a surprise in your conscious mind, but probably if you think about it, Things have been happening for quite some time in your intuition or in your more subconscious observations, and you realize like this is a change that's about to happen, and you might be resisting it, you might be fearful of it, you might not know how to do it, 
And then something happens at eclipses that allows energy to move in a different way. And this particular eclipse is square. Both the sun and the moon are square to Uranus. And Uranus is about to make its ingress into Taurus in about a month and a half. And over the course of the next month, there will be several aspects to Uranus, including Mars conjunct Uranus. And um, let's see, I have some notes if I can locate that really quickly. I don't remember when it is. Um, I'll come back to that. So anyway, um, over the course of the next month, we'll have several uh, aspects to Uranus and there's a lot of change that's happening right now. So change is everywhere. It is across the globe, change. Leadership is changing, climate is changing, economies are changing, markets are changing, people are changing. God is change, right? Octavia Butler, God is change. It's happening all the time and it's accelerating right now. There is a really fast amount of change. And as Uranus moves into Taurus, the next seven years will be a huge amount of change. And we will either perish and really suffer in this change, or we will survive and thrive. And I truly believe that it's going to depend on how we can get into our bodies and on the fucking planet again. And one of the things about the Aquarian age, along with all the good things that people talk about, is that it is the age of technology. Aquarius rules technology and the internet. And as we move into the Aquarian age, we are rapidly becoming severed from our bodies and from the planet. And most of us are completely consumed with this global nervous system called the internet, which is also a recorder, recording information of all these things that happen and rapid firing information. And we're overwhelmed and we're addicted and we're saturated with blue light and um, all the kinds of information that we can get. And every time you get a text, uh, a little shot of cortisol, like I think it's cortisol, like moves out into your endocrine system and you want it again and again and again. And we're very distracted. And a lot of us are pretty numbed out from what's going on. And the way that trauma functions right now and continues to perpetuate is through increasing numbness. We don't feel it. We don't feel the impact of our decisions and actions. So if we want the benefit of the Aquarian age, which is freedom, which is collaboration and collectivism and the healthy Aquarius, the healthy communities that are formed from healthy Leo, from people who are supported to be themselves. And once again, a shout out to Sage Hamilton, who knows something about helping children trust themselves and express themselves authentically and helping parents learn that they don't need to program their children. Their children are incredibly wise to begin with. Like this is the mindset that we want to bring into our collectives to see one another's intelligence, to honor it, to support each other's unique expression and to support expression and intelligence that is intertwined and in constant communication and sensitivity to the environment. Any of us individually cannot survive. We need one another. And if we really want to thrive, if we really want to enjoy our lives, um, we need to help each other do the same thing. 
So think back on these dates for eclipses and consider these kinds of lessons. Like how have you been learning to be yourself? How have you been learning to connect, to uh, engage with publics, communities, collectives? What does personal authenticity and expression mean for you? And what does it mean to be part of a group? And look at the places where Leo and Aquarius rule in your natal chart for more information on those specific areas of life. And if you're old enough, you might want to think back to the last series of eclipses we had in these signs. And in 2008 and 2009, we were um, having eclipses in the same axis, though the nodes were switched and the north node was in Aquarius then. But in 1998 to 2000, we were having eclipses in basically uh, at almost exactly the same degree points. So if you think all the way back 19 years ago, what was going on? Some of you aren't old enough to do that, but many of you are. So you can reflect on the eclipses that way. All right, so a little bit longer podcast than usual. I want to talk about the astrology for the upcoming month, because as I said uh, last um, podcast in the 2019 podcast, I'm about to change the way that I'm doing um, embodied astrology. And The next new moon, you will not get as long of a report from me. I'll definitely still be putting something out and I'll be offering an embodiment practice. But um, I'm over the next month or so, I'm going to shift into a weekly cycle rather than every other week. And you'll have less content more often. And it'll be less overwhelming for all of us. So um, just to go a little bit longer, I want to give a forecast and an update about the upcoming month. And I'm just going to note the time so I can include that in the show notes. All right. So we begin Aquarius season, January 20th, the sun moves into Aquarius. We have this lunar eclipse in Leo and on the same day, Venus is squared to Neptune. Lunar eclipses, full moons. Um, these are times of increased activation, reaction, definitely increased emotionality for a lot of people, especially those of us whose chart this touches profoundly. And Venus square Neptune, depending on how you experience it, can be amazing or not. So on the not so amazing side, if you are experiencing a lot of change with this eclipse, there may be feelings with Venus square Neptune, with this eclipse, um, especially with Leo of heartache and like, oh my God, things are changing. Fuck. I just want to say, breathe, keep breathing and connect to source, whatever it is that you consider to be source, the gods, the goddesses, the spirits of your understanding, the universe, make your partnership, make your primary partnerships with God whatever you want to call it, with, div- with divine energy. No human being will ever give you the solace and the satisfaction and the comfort that you need. You might be able to do that to yourself, and you can definitely do that with yourself when you are in communion and relationship with the divine. And I access this energy through nature, um, if I get myself out into the trees and the woods and I just remember like, okay, there's a lot of intelligence here and this planet is good. 
the intelligence of this planet is good and I'm a part of that. That's a way that I can access it. Sound, again, is another way. Dancing, moving, being in your body, breathing, praying, reading sacred texts, however it works for you. If you are experiencing heartache, confusion, and feelings of loss around the beginning of Aquarius season, I love you. Please connect to Source. The next day is Martin Luther King Day, and the eclipse energy continues into this day as Mars squares Saturn. Mars and Aries squares Saturn and Capricorn. Um, I'm feeling this really politically in terms of Mars and Aries and Saturn and Capricorn and a lot of aggression and machismo in politics right now. On a personal level, this is a day to focus your energies uh, to, to changing systems that you don't want to be a part of anymore. And it's a day to avoid arguments and confrontation and aggression and put your energy towards positive change. On the 22nd, Venus conjuncts Jupiter. This is a really wild week. This first week of Aquarius season, there's some really big and powerful aspects. And as Venus conjuncts Jupiter, there's a magnification of Jupiter's energy. And Jupiter also is in this kind of ongoing square with Neptune. And this can be confusing for a lot of us, but also for a lot of us, and I think maybe more of us than not, this is opening. This is feeling like, I don't know, the world is really crazy right now, and there's a lot of awful things that are happening, but somehow my heart is opening and I'm more able to love. That's how I'm feeling that aspect. On the 23rd, Mercury squares Uranus, Mercury and Capricorn, and then it goes on to sextile Chiron, and then it moves into Aquarius on the 23rd. So a lot of mental energy on the 23rd. Um, it's a maybe a good day to like notice all the things that are stimulating you and then really try and pay attention to your nervous system. Check out the guided meditation for assistance on that. On the 25th, Mars is square to Jupiter. It's a great day to continue um, any kinds of positive efforts you're making. It's a really good day for energy. On the 29th, the Sun and Mercury are conjunct, and this is an important point in the Mercury retrograde cycle and definitely a day to notice what occurs to you, what arises in your awareness and to take notes about it. On January 27th, we have a quarter, uh, the last quarter moon in Scorpio. Um, coming from the new moon in Aquarius and moving into uh, the last quarter moon in Scorpio, excuse me, I said new moon in Aquarius. Coming from the full moon in Leo and moving towards the new moon in Aquarius, the last quarter moon in Scorpio is a really good time to consider how to let things go. Clean out your house, declutter your brain, limit your options. You don't need to attend to everything. What is the most essential? This is a really important question for all of us at this time. What is the most essential to focus our energy on, to give money to, to collect, whatever it is? That's a day to meditate on that. Um, from January 31st through February 10th, Saturn and uh, Saturn is sextile to Neptune. So Saturn and Capricorn is sextile to Neptune. Um, the, this is a time, first of all, to be really mindful of how you're altering your consciousness. Um, if you are drinking alcohol, smoking weed, using different kinds of drugs, um, just notice, like notice what state of mind you're in before you consume the substances and why you're making those choices. And that's all just notice. Um, 
it's a really good time to let the creative, liminal, non-logical start to infuse your decision-making. And so why I'm saying notice is because if you're using a substance to kind of open yourself up creatively, that might be a good use of it. If you're using the substance to numb out, that's something to be aware of. This aspect from the 31st through February 10th is a time when we actually have a lot of support to infuse the structures of our lives with magic. And if you're checking out and numbing out, you don't get to access it. On February 1st, Mars is squared in Neptune, um, another day to try and avoid arguments and aggression. On February 2nd, um, this is Imbolc. It's a um, Gaelic and pagan holiday. It celebrates fertility and and the coming of spring. It's also Groundhog Day, which is a holiday I don't totally understand. Um, And astrologically, Venus is trying to Uranus and square to Chiron on that day. It's a really good day to do ritual, to, to burn beeswax candles, to cleanse and purify your space, to um, build the inner light. And the inner light is like, what is going to sustain us? You know, what, what's, the, what's the sun inside of you? What's the warmth that radiates out um, and permeates and surrounds you? As we move forward into February, the first um, week of February, there's a lot of sextile energy. On February 3rd, Venus moves into Capricorn. And so this is a really nice thing for all you Capricorns who've been dealing with like astrological bullshit for a long time. Um, And then for anyone, wherever Capricorn is in your chart, you now have the benefic and positive support of Venus to attract and relate and bring some ease. Um, But Venus in Capricorn is a little bit more of a serious and sober lover. And so it's a really good time also to make uh, decisions about finances. Um, So February, moving into tax season, maybe thinking about how to, um, what's the word for it? Like not pay taxes to the military anymore. I'm forgetting what that's called. If any of you are people who research this and you're like, I don't want to fund the military and I do really want to give my money to education and healthcare, and you're working on strategies to do that, please let me know. I would love to know about it. Um, Anyway, as we get into February, um, we have a, a new moon and I'll catch up with you then on February 4th. We've got a new moon in Aquarius and I'll offer a little bit of a practice at that point. And then the next day begins the Lunar New Year. And so this is the Chinese Zodiac, which I'm not super familiar with at all, but I know it's the year of the Earth Pig. And um, if you or someone you know is an expert in Chinese astrology or a novice, but you have more information than I do and you want to send me anything about that and I can share it on Instagram or Facebook, um, I would love to do that. As the week continues, the sun sextiles Jupiter and Mercury sextiles Mars on February 7th, and then on the 9th, Mercury is sextile to Uranus. And that whole week, um, kind of the first nine days or so of February, all of that sextile energy is very productive. And so the planetary forces are lending themselves to one another. It's a great week to be productive and um, to kind of have your like projects flowing. 
On February 10th, um, Mercury moves into Pisces and it's going to stay there for a while because of the upcoming Mercury retrograde, which is um, March 5th through the 27th. And so on the 10th, as it moves into Pisces, um, that's just a time to start to slow down a little bit and be a little more mindful about the decisions that you're making and any plans that you're trying to solidify, contracts that you're trying to sign, etc. Since Pisces is the global field of emotional interconnection, I would also just say that while Mercury is in Pisces, we're not thinking super logically. We are thinking really emotionally and empathically and um, kind of unconsciously, like through vibes. And so it's not a great time to believe your thoughts. I mean, any time really is probably a good time to question like who is this that is thinking and where are these thoughts arising from? But particularly with Mercury and Pisces and and coming up on the Mercury retrograde, it's a great time to journal, you know, get your feelings out, talk to your therapist, process. But like if you're having all kinds of things occur for you, write them down, reflect on them for a while and don't make big decisions, especially if they're emotional decisions. Like, if you need to remove yourself from danger or something, obviously do that. But if you're like swimming around in vibes and you're like, that person is thinking this about me and da, 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 like just chill out. Like, you don't know, give it some time. On February 14th, which is Valentine's day, Mars moves out of Aries and into Taurus is a really nice aspect for Valentine's day. It's a great aspect for sex and sensuality and having a beautiful meal and rose petals on your beautiful sheets or something like that. Taurus is an incredibly sensual sign. It loves being in the body. It loves having the body exalted and revered and anything that is sensual is good for Mars and Taurus. Mars and Taurus is a time to slow down and work steady slow and steady wins the race. On February 17th, Venus is sextile to Neptune and the sun is sextile to Uranus. This is a really good day for insight, great day for visioning and thinking about the future and um, yeah, like receiving downloads. And then on February 18th, which is also President's Day in the United States, we have some really wild astrology. And that's when I'm going to be back with you for a much longer update. And what I want to say for now is that is the day that the sun moves into Pisces. Um, It's also the day that Venus is conjunct Saturn and Capricorn and Mercury is conjunct Neptune and Pisces. So some pretty interesting planetary mergers right there with Venus, Saturn and Mercury, Neptune. And it is also the day that Chiron makes its ingress into Aries for a nine year transit. And Chiron in Aries is a big deal. And when I come back on February 18th, I'm going to tell you all about it. And I'll also have some workshops and offerings to work with Chiron in Aries. And I'm excited about this transit. I think there's a lot of potential for awakening and healing for all of us. Um, So check back in on February 18th. I'm going to leave it there for now. Please um, listen to your horoscopes for more personal information about this eclipse. The horoscopes that I just put out are um, really kind of focusing on the eclipse and not so much on Aquarius season, but thinking about the eclipse energy and how it's affecting your charts. Make sure to listen for your rising sign as well as your sun sign. And if you're interested in working more with embodied astrology, definitely check out the Aquarius season planner. 
everything that I just kind of ran through in terms of information is listed there in that planner with much longer and more detailed descriptions, as well as places for you to make notes and little prompts for observation, etc. And I think they're um, pretty fun ways to learn about astrology. And that's really the purpose of them is I love this work. I really want to share it with you. I think it's such a valuable tool. Um, And those planners, of course, are available as a single purchase uh, of $15, but they are given as a gift to all my monthly subscribers. And you can subscribe for any amount per month. So it's definitely a better deal to become a monthly subscriber. And then you get the planners for free and you also get discounts on classes like on the 2019 astrology class or the upcoming Chiron and Aries class that I'll be offering. So please check those out. All right, everyone. Happy full moon. Happy eclipse. I wish you all the best. Please meditate on your heart and nervous system and the way that you are functioning and infusing and infused by your communities and be awesome to each other. Be kind, be awesome, be smart, be safe, contribute to our collective health. Thanks a lot for listening and bye for now.